This morning, uh, because tonight is Shavuot, and I hope that you will join us for uh, all the various teachers that will be part of our tikkun. Uh, I believe it starts at 7.30 on the Sinai Temple YouTube site. But tonight, because it is Shavuot, uh, I thought that rather than specifically speak about the parsha, I would speak about the Torah and the way the Torah is conceived in the Jewish tradition. In particular, um, I thought that maybe I would speak about how many Torahs we have. And by that, I mean the development of the principal um, the principal mode of uh, learning and teaching and shaping our tradition, which is actually Torah Shabbat the oral Torah. Let me explain what I mean. Inside the Torah itself, the word Torah is often used to denote something other than the totality of the Torah. So we will hear this is the Torah of the Olah, for example, which is a kind of sacrifice, or this is the Torah of the Chatat, which is another kind of sacrifice. In other words, Torah means a set of instructions or teaching, and the word Torah itself does not always mean the totality of the books of the Torah. That idea, the idea that Torah can mean more than the specific five books or all the books of the Tanakh, that idea was something that excited and moved the rabbis. Because their sense was that the Torah by itself, uninterpreted, was not a guide to anyone's life and couldn't be a guide to anyone's life. Because there was too much that wasn't explained. And it was inevitable when you read the Torah that you were going to say, for example, okay, the Torah tells me that I can't do malacha on the Sabbath, but it doesn't tell me what malacha is. Is this malacha? Is that malacha? And therefore, as with every text, it requires an interpreter. Virtually nothing is self-explanatory. We say things are self-explanatory, but then someone comes along and understands them differently from the way we do. And we think, how could you understand it that way? It's clearly this. Um, but words don't work that way. They are multivalent. They mean many things. And when you put them together, they have different implications. And that's why we're always having to clarify and explain as opposed to just say something and be done with it. Um, that being, the, uh, that being the case, the development of the interpretive tradition has to be as old as the written tradition. Because the moment that you get the first instructions, you get the first explanations. So when, for example, the convert comes to Shammai and Shammai tells him that there are two Torahs and he objects to it, Shammai pushes him away. He comes to Hillel when Hillel tells him there are two Torahs. The way Hillel illustrates it is by one day he teaches him Aleph, Bet, Gimel, the beginning of the Hebrew alphabet, and the next day he teaches him that Gimel is the first letter. 
And the convert says, but, but yesterday you said Aleph was the first letter. And Hillel says, you see, you have to rely on teaching, even in things as elementary as this. So on more complex things, why don't you believe me that I'm carrying forward the authoritative tradition? And in fact, when we think about the world in general, we realize that most of the things that we believe, we believe on authority, not on evidence. That's just natural. We can't help it. I don't know for sure that uh, Napoleon lost that Waterloo. I know it on authority. I know it because various books say it's true. But I wasn't there. I didn't see him. Right. So how do I know? And that's true of most of our knowledge. How do I know that my grandfather's uh, was born in such and such a place? I wasn't there. I didn't see it. Maybe he told me. Someone else told me. It's still something I know on authority. And so the rabbi said, the Torah, when you read it, all the questions that arise, and they are many, even in what seems like the simplest declarations, like the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not is it kill or murder? Does that mean this kind of killing is allowed and that kind of killing is not? Does it mean you can never, ever kill anyone at any time? And therefore, if someone comes to kill you, you should just say, okay, kill me because I'm not allowed to kill. In other words, even the simplest declarations require um, explanation and interpretation. And therefore, the question is not will you interpret the Torah or just do what it says? The question is, how will you interpret it? And whose authority will you accept for the interpretation? And what boundaries do you believe there are? For example, do you believe that the Torah allows boundaries for idolatry? Well, it's pretty hard to argue that it does, because over and over and over and over and over and over again, it says idolatry is not permitted. So someone who comes along with that interpretation, you can say, I'm sorry, that is beyond the bounds of any interpretation that I could recognize as legitimate. But what if someone comes along and says um, the Torah suggests sometimes that there might be other gods? And that's why when it says, who's like you among the gods? I think it might be that it thinks there are other gods. So then you have to have some sort of interpretation that explains what that means and how it could mean that. And still the Torah could be teaching us that there is one God. In other words, um, without uh, we learn even on Shavuot, even on this holiday where we are celebrating the giving of the Torah, that the giving of the Torah naturally entails the um, understanding of what those lessons are. And then the question is, what makes an authoritative interpreter? Because one phrase in the Talmud says that every interpretation that every student would ever give was given to Moses at Sinai. Now, why would the rabbi say something that seems on the face of it so implausible? Uh, Remember that when the rabbis were uh, teaching in the first centuries of the common era, beginning right before the first centuries of the common era, they were not the only group 
that was competing for authority among the Jewish people. We know of at least a few, but there were probably many more teachers, groups, because it hadn't quite coalesced around the rabbis as the authoritative interpreters of the tradition. And therefore, they wanted to make their interpretations more sellable. Like, it isn't just that we think this, it is in fact that these interpretations go all the way back to Moses at Sinai. And so we have the ultimate authority for the interpretations that we offer to you. And when we say, for example, that melacha on Shabbat means that you shouldn't tear things, that's because we have this authoritative tradition that because in the Torah, we know that work on the sanctuary stopped on the Shabbat, therefore all the melachot, all the labors that were involved in building the sanctuary are the categories of things that you are not permitted to do on the Sabbath. Because there are a couple of things, like lighting a fire, that the Torah explicitly prohibits. But the larger categories are rabbinically derived. Nowhere does it say in the Torah, don't tear anything on the Sabbath. But that was one of the malachot, one of the labors that the rabbis extrapolated from what went on in building the sanctuary, building the Mishkan, and because that stopped on the Shabbat, because they didn't do it on the Shabbat, then they knew that that was something that wasn't permitted. And by that extrapolation, by that spinning out, they gave us the laws that we think of now as the Sabbath laws. And those interpretations, of course, never ceased. And the reason that they didn't is not only because human ingenuity is endless and every new student who comes to the text wants to make their own contribution and develop their own insights and have their own ideas, but also because human situations constantly change. So when, uh, to take an example that uh, I was speaking about the other day, when electricity comes along, the question is, is turning on a light switch equivalent or not to building a fire on the Sabbath? And you can't open the Torah and say, what do you think about electricity? Because there was no man-made electricity, human-made electricity, if you will. At the time, there was only natural electricity, and obviously the Torah doesn't discuss that. And there was no light bulb. There had been no Edison And so as human situations change, interpretations change. An example we have in our own day is the Torah didn't say anything about whether you could count if you were zoomed into a minion. Does the 10 count on a minion if you participate by Zoom? Well, curiously enough, you can scour the entire Tanakh and even the Talmud, and it doesn't tell you if being counted in a Zoom minion counts. But you can use the principles of the law, just like we do in American law, although differently as well. You can use the principles of the law to try to figure out whether or not that 
would be permissible under the categories and authorities and ideas that have already been established. And so it is this ever branching tree or this uh, gives off or to use the prophetic image, it gives off one hammer, gives off many sparks. And that oral Torah grows alongside the written Torah to enable people to live in a flexible and changing tradition because of their flexible and changing circumstances. And so Shavuot marks the beginning of the Torahitic tradition in many ways, but it does not encompass all of it by any means. Um, in fact, there is, uh, I, I will tell you just a small part of this Midrash, of this uh, rabbinic story, which is illustrative of how the rabbis even thought themselves of their own interpretive uh, enterprise. There's a story of Rabbi Akiva, of Moses, going up to heaven, and God shows Moses that Rabbi Akiva interprets not just the words of the Torah, but even the decorations that are made on top of the letters, the little tagim, the little crown sort of, that are made on top of the letters in a written Torah scroll. And Moses is baffled because that wasn't what he thought he was doing. So this is a kind of playful acknowledgement of the rabbis that sometimes it seemed as though what they were saying and doing went far beyond the original intention of the Torah. Um, and yet at the same time, in other places, they make statements that what they're doing is entirely both consistent and even anticipated by the, um, the Torah. And my guess is that, although I can't possibly know, that they felt both things at different times in different ways, because remember that um, emotions like, like, like outlook, like views, can be contradictory and still inhabit the same person, sometimes even at the same time. The other, um, the other explanation I want to give of the oral Torah, just because tonight, as you follow our uh, tikkun and other tikkunim, um, as you learn more and more, and as you listen more and more, you'll hear, hear these terms bandied about, is just to remind you that um, the, the Torah, which spans a long time from the beginning of of Abraham, which is 1,500 BCE to all the way to the book of Daniel, which is a couple hundred years before the common era. So that's over a thousand years of history, um, in the, in, uh, in the Torah that the rabbinic tradition, which came after, obviously, although it draws, we, we are quite sure on earlier interpretations that were given since the interpretive tradition always existed with the written word. The rabbinic tradition also covers about 600, 600 or more years. And that although the Talmud is the greatest product of that tradition, 
the Talmud being mainly the Babylonian Talmud. There were really two. One was written in the land of Israel, mainly in Kesaria, sometimes called the Jerusalem Talmud. It used to be referred to as the Palestinian Talmud. Um, and the other is the Babylonian Talmud. Uh, but even though the Talmud or the Talmuds are the greatest product of rabbinic tradition, the rabbis produced lots of other kinds of material books, so on. So when someone says there is a midrash, which means a rabbinic story or interpretation, it might come from the Talmud, but it could also come from many different collections of midrashim that span hundreds of years, the last of them being so late that they're even influenced by the Arabic slash Muslim beginnings of the Arabic slash Muslim tradition. Um, so they can go all the way into the eighth century. Um, and that means that you get a large collection of different kinds of stories over a long period of time. And all of that is part of the rabbinic tradition. Things that you would otherwise not, um, uh, that, that take the Torah in directions that you would otherwise not assume the Torah would be taken, although primarily, primarily this, uh, the legal and even the interpretive tradition is in the Talmud, um, and other bits of, uh, other bits of rabbinic tradition are written in other books or exist, some of them only in manuscript. Uh, that, of course, doesn't end the interpretive tradition when the rabbinic age ends, because you still have medieval commentators, which includes poets and commentators and, and original authors and philosophers and, and every stripe of uh, religious and related creativity. And that moves from beyond into the, into the time of the Reformation Renaissance and the modern age. And this creativity never stopped, right? It was continual. And so some of the things that we think of as deeply part of the Jewish tradition are fairly new. Um, so, for example, uh, lighting a Yorzeit candle, um, which we will do uh, transferred from an existing flame on, uh, on Friday uh, in the late afternoon before Shabbat, um, lighting a Yurtzite candle because on, on Saturday morning there is the Yisker service. Yurtzite is a medieval um, creation of the Jewish tradition. Uh, and so many of these kinds of traditions come in along the way, but once they become enshrined in custom, we think of them as having gone back forever and ever and ever. Uh, Rabbi Yitz Greenberg used to tell the story of someone who said, um, you know, it's it's terrible to study the Talmud in English. We should study it in its original language in Yiddish. Well, of course, Yiddish is not the original language of the Talmud. Aramaic is. Um, and Yiddish, again, is a conflation of sort of Hebrew and German that grew up in the Middle Ages. And that recognition that the tradition is always adding to itself, changing, modifying, so on, is something that as moderns we know but sometimes it's a little hard to reconcile ourselves to since we think of the tradition as something that was given to Moses at Sinai and never changed, which, as I said, is how some of the Talmudic rabbis thought of it, but is not actually, of course, the way it is. Um, 
Having said that, uh, the principles that are used to interpret the text, uh, some of them, like the ones that we read every morning service, the laws of Rabbi Ishmael are fixed. Uh, those are mainly how you derive law from different texts. Uh, and, and the read of character and circumstance and storytelling and so on, all of those sorts of things are familiar to us in some ways from the way that we also interpret, extrapolate, make assumptions about uh, the characters in our own lives and the characters in our own history. Um, even as Americans, I would say, for example, George Washington chopping down the cherry tree is a midrash. It's an American midrash as opposed to a Jewish midrash. But it's a midrash because it is a story that illustrates something central, not only about the character of the person, but also about the values of the society. And so Avraham breaking his father's idols is a midrash. It's not in the Torah, but it not only says something about the person, it also says something about the character and values of the tradition of which that midrash is a part. So we really have a dual Torah system. We have a written Torah that is um, from, from, the, from when it's first written down is fixed because even though there are, as I've said, shifting manuscripts and it's not completely fixed, um, things in writing are written and therefore remain more or less as they are. Copyists may make mistakes. There may be different manuscripts, but they stay more or less as they are. The idea of the oral Torah was that it would be an oral Torah, that it would be more dynamic, living, flexible. It would go from teacher to student. And it really started to be written down in times of persecution and difficulty when people were afraid that the Torah would be lost and uh, the oral Torah now would be lost and no longer accessible. So since teachers were in danger, societies were in danger, exile threatened, people started to write down those deliberations and ideas that before had been enshrined in oral teaching, because especially in the ancient world, we know this from Socrates, from Buddha, um, the oral teacher, the person was the ideal that all ideas and, and ways of being were much more effective in a person than they were in a book. Because if it's a religious idea, then it has to be wrapped up in a human being. Um, the artist can leave the product of their creation, but the product of a religious education is a human being, not a book. Um, a book is only intended as part of the cyclical process, that is to influence the way human beings are. And so the oral tradition was a tradition of people more than of books, although as time goes on, uh, it becomes a tradition of books because people are ephemeral, um, but the words that they speak can be copied and repeated and studied for generation to generation. So there is this interest, interesting interplay. Um, and I guess the way to summarize it is that we have become a people of the book. And with that,
I hope tonight you study the book with the people. Uh, you'll have to do it online, but now for the people of the book and the internet. Chag Shavuot Sameach.